Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and today I have the recording of this month's Gospel Gathering with Rich Velotis on calming leadership, how we as leaders can be a steady presence in a world fractured by anxiety. Rich is the Brooklyn-born pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens. He's funny, charming, and deeply challenging. So enjoy this part one talk on calming leadership. Uh, It's a great gift to be here. Um, My first time in Portland, and what a place. It is a remarkable, remarkable place. Uh, I've had uh, some good coffee, and uh, I'm a Dunkin' Donuts guy, and so I apologize. So I don't have a discerning palate around like, Oh, this is remarkable, but I, but it's getting the job done. And so I, uh, grateful to be here. Um, I, I pastor New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. The church that started about 37 years ago. I started pastoring there 15 years ago and became the lead pastor 10 years ago. And, uh, I'm going to talk about calm leadership today and being a calm presence in the world. And I've had to learn what it means to do that, uh, in our context because of our great diversity. Uh, our congregation uh, is in a neighborhood where National Geographic called the most diverse zip code in the world. And so 123 languages are spoken in the neighborhood. 75 nations are represented in our community. Uh, Queens, 50% of Queens is foreign born. And, uh, and because when you get that many different people in one space, you're going to have lots of complexity and anxiety. And I've had to learn what it means to navigate this in my own soul and in my own leadership. And so what I'm going to do, uh, two sessions here for our first session, um, I want to give more of a, a sermon, all right? Um, and then the second is going to be more like a workshop, all right? And so um, that's how we'll do it. But I want to look at a passage of scripture out of John 15. And I want to say from the onset that to... Be a calm presence in the world is not about being an emotional robot, but it's about not letting uh, emotional reactivity drive our lives. Uh, and so what does it mean for us to be present to God, present to one another, and present to ourselves? And that's what I want to focus on in our text this morning uh, in John 15. And so John 15 um, verse 5 through verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, 
so have I loved you. That one verse is worthy of three hours of contemplation. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I want to focus on the word abide that shows up multiple times in John 15 and throughout the Gospel of John. That's what I really want to focus on. To to be a calm presence in the world requires us to learn what it means to abide. I want to give us about one minute of silence Um As we look at this passage, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together said that we are to be silent before the word because God should have the first word. And we are to be silent after the word because God should have the last word. We are to be silent in the morning because God should have the first word and silent at night because God should have the last word. And so I want to give us just a minute to just breathe and be present to the very presence of God and then we'll look at this passage together. Let me invite you to close your eyes, maybe open your hands, place them on your lap, take a deep breath in. And out. And let's just be attentive to the presence of Jesus in our midst. Lord, thank you for the gift of your presence, the gift of your love, the gift of Holy Scripture. And now I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Uh, The year was 2020. Do you remember 2020? (laughs) I received an email at night, and I did something that I know you pastors and leaders never do. I decided to open up my email at 1030 at night. It's not a good practice. It's never good news when the email comes at 1030 at night. But the email subject line said, great idea. And so it must have been a good email (laughs) to open up. It was from one of our pastors who said, Rich, I have a great idea. This was in October of 2020, about six weeks before the election. And so one of our pastors said, Rich, I have a great idea. What if we had a Zoom webinar where we could identify someone who's voting for Trump and someone who's voting for Biden in our congregation. And let's have both of them uh, share why they're voting for each respective candidate before our entire congregation on Zoom. (laughs) And so I read the email. I contemplate, like Bonhoeffer said, to just be silent before God. (laughs) And with great faith and pastoral courage, I responded, Hell no, we're never going to do anything like that. Are you crazy? She said... I thought we were like the emotionally healthy church. You know what I'm saying? Like Pete Scazzaro and all that. I said, that's when he was leading the thing. It's a new day. It's a new day. (laughs) Now, this was problematic because our church is very diverse. 
I would say my pastoral assessment is that 30% of our church probably voted for Biden. 30% of our church probably voted for Trump. 20% of our church voted for Spider-Man because he's from Queens. And 10% probably abstained and many couldn't vote because uh, they're not uh, U.S. citizens. And so she responded again, I think it's a good idea for us to do this. Have you prayed about it? And I was like, oh yeah, I've prayed about it. And we're not doing this at all. She came back again and said, Rich, I, I said, who do you have in mind? She said, we can get two of our elders. I said, even worse, even worse. This is gonna, this is gonna end very poorly. My anxiety, I was not a calm presence. My anxiety levels were really rising. We met again and she said, I think we should do it. And I said, okay, let's do it. She identified a Puerto Rican man in his 60s who was voting for Biden, a Korean-American man in his 50s who was voting for Trump, and this conversation was going to be moderated by an African-American millennial man, because that's how we do it in Queens. (laughs) And I never forgot the day where this conversation happened. I was in my apartment in Queens. Everything shut down, 2020, I get into my bedroom and I'm thinking, this is the last week I'm going to be the pastor of New Life Fellowship Church. (laughs) Why did I say yes to this? This is awful. Um, And then I did with what us pastors do when when we have great anxiety, and but we can't let the people know. I opened my computer, I pressed start video on Zoom, and I said, praise the Lord, everyone. Aren't you happy to be here? Don't you feel the presence of God in this? I was lying. Don't you feel the presence of God here? I began to give a talk around the nature of politics and what's happening beneath the surface of our own lives. And then we had a conversation. Now, the last thing I want to do is romanticize this. The last thing I want to do is sensationalize this, idealize this, to to kind of get into a space where uh, the differences were not really as pronounced as they are because they were very different. Differences in policies, differences in how people think a world should flourish. There's so many fundamental differences. And yet what I discovered there actually blew me away. Because what I discovered in the midst of great difference was humility and curiosity a willingness to ask good questions. And at the end of the day, to be sure, the person that I was hoping wouldn't come to that Zoom meeting came and she blew up the chat section. I'm thinking, oh no, why did she come? There were some moments where it was just really awkward. And yet we discovered something in that space, that something is possible. We can live with a calm presence in the world in a way that confounds the world. When I think about becoming a calm presence, this is what I'm essentially getting at. Becoming a calm presence means that we are to remain close and curious to God, close and curious to ourselves, and close and curious to others, especially in times of high anxiety, and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. The invitation for us today is to be a calm presence, remaining close to God, remaining close to ourselves, and remaining close to others especially in times of high anxiety. And this is not an easy task, and yet I believe Jesus is equipping the church for this. And so when I think about this, there are a set of questions that comes to mind about being a calm presence. Questions like, what does it mean to stay connected? How can we hold space with one another? How can we resist the emotional and relational cutoffs that seemingly mark the entire world? How can I move close to people who have very different visions of what human flourishing looks like? 
Do I have what it takes to listen deeply and offer a calm presence to those I don't see the, who don't see the world as I do? In, in essence, the word is abide. When we look at our text in John 15, Jesus is coming to an end of his three years with his disciples. For three years, he's proclaimed the kingdom of God. For three years, he's given sight to the blind. For three years, he's healed the sick. For three years, he has announced that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And now as he's about to go to the cross, he's giving his uh, kind of summary statements to his disciples. Words of hope, words of reassurance. And in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, he comes back to one word over and over and over again. And it's the word, abide, remain. The word that shows up in the Gospel of John, not five times, not ten, not fifteen, not twenty, not thirty, not forty, not fifty, not sixty. Sixty-three times in the Gospel of John, the word abide shows up. Remain shows up. When we think about the range of that meaning uh, in the Greek language, it, it, it's the word meno. And this is this range of meaning that I think Jesus is, is trying to help us see that, that, that to, to abide means to remain, to stay, to dwell, to continue to be present, to continue in relationship, to wait, to accept, to suffer for, to submit to, to act in accord with, to be faithful to. And the question is, are these the words that describe our life with God? And are these the words that describe the lives of our people? In our local churches, abide. To be a calm presence in the world means, first and foremost, that we must learn to abide with God. I think about this almost every morning. When I'm home in New York, one of my um, acts of love for my wife Rosie is to make her a cup of tea almost every morning. And uh, it's a great practice for us. And when I think about making tea, I think about the spiritual life, I think about formation, I think about what Jesus talks about with this word, abide. Because, and we're going to get deep here, I've discovered that there's at least two ways of making tea. Two ways of making tea. The first way of making tea is to be a dipper. It's to take the tea bag and dip in and dip out and dip in and dip out. And when the tea is to your liking, if you want to get really sophisticated with it, you take a spoon, you wrap the tea bag around it, you press down, you discard, you enjoy your cup of tea. Some of us are dippers. When I drink tea, if I can confess, I'm, I'm a dipper. I'm, I'm, I'm a dipper. I'm a dipper. And, and, and when it comes to the spiritual life, there are lots of dippers in the church. We dip in church, we dip out of church. We dip in small group, we dip out of small group. We dip in prayer, we dip out of prayer. We dip in the Bible, we dip out of the Bible. That's one way of making tea and that's one way of relating to God. We can be dippers. But there's another way of making tea. And that is, instead of being a dipper, we become a dweller. Where we just allow the tea bag to just Sit there and right before your very eyes, the composition of the cup begins to change without you doing much. You see, when you're dipping, that's working your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? You're going in and you're going out. But when you just allow it to dwell there, something happens right before your very eyes. I remember meeting with someone at a Queen's diner and he was dipping in and dipping out and dipping in and dipping out. I said, brother, just let the tea bag dwell there. And what he said next just stunned me and it gave me preaching material. He said, no, no, I can't just let it sit there because if I just let the tea bag sit there, the tea is going to get too strong. And I said, my, my, my. He said, what happened? I said, you're giving me preaching material, brother. This Because what happens is when you allow yourself to dwell with God, the presence of God gets strong. And you find yourself doing stuff you can't do in your own strength. 
You find yourself forgiving when you used to be resentful. You find yourself generous when you used to be stingy. You find yourself courageous when you used to be afraid. Something happens in you when you allow yourself to dwell in God. We, we open ourselves up to the grace of God, which is what Dallas Willard said, right? When he said, what is grace? Grace is God doing for you, in you and through you, what you cannot do for yourself. And so we are invited to be a calm presence in the world, to be a calm presence in our communities, in, in a world that's, that's caught up in all kinds of fractures, in all kinds of divisiveness, in all kinds of hyper-reactivity and anxiety. We cannot be a calm presence without learning what it means to abide with God, to be with God. In other words, I believe we need a recovery of contemplative life. I think about a story about Mother Teresa. Someone was interviewing Mother Teresa one day and they said, Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? And her response was, I don't say anything, I, I listen. And his response was, well, okay. And what does God say to you? And her response was, nothing, God listens. And he was so confused. As some of you are right now. It's just like, I, I, what, what are we getting at here? Prayer at its core is, it's, it's the practicing of presence. It's listening to God listen. It's being with God. And what the world desperately needs are people who have been with God. Are people who have been with Jesus. This is what I love about the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit is exploding, as the Holy Spirit is just, uh, uh, you know, turning the world upside down. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. The question for us, the question for me is, who have we been with? It's very easy to say these uh, these people have been with Fox News and these people have been with CNN and these people have been with this personality. But what what what, it, what it would say about the church in Portland if when they look at our lives they said the only thing we know about these people is that these people have been with Jesus. Abide in me. To be a calm presence of the world requires us to learn how to dwell. How to be with God. This is why I'm so grateful. One of the, my, my, when I became a Christian at 19 years of age, 15 family members became a Christian at the same night. My parents, my siblings, cousins, all that. One night in a small Latino Pentecostal church in Brooklyn, New York. And after having this massive encounter with God, I met with my grandfather who lived down the block from me and he gave me one, um, assignment to do. He told me, you've experienced an encounter with Jesus Christ. But this encounter needs to be sustained by formation. And what you're going to have to learn to do is to dwell and abide with God. And his first assignment he gave me was to memorize Psalm 27. And had me park at verse number four. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. 
Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. And then here it is. One thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What people need, what our churches need, is this uh, is a radical capacity to, uh, to abide with God to dwell with God, to behold the beauty of God. And so Jesus lets us know in John 15, he he invites us, number one, to abide with God. And then you begin to see that Jesus is not simply concerned about abiding with God and having that be the extent of our spiritual journey. In order to be a calm presence in the world requires us to learn how to abide with one another. Look how Jesus pivots. He goes from abide in me and then he starts using the language of love and loving of neighbor, abiding in neighbor. And and when I think about Jesus' disciples, I think about how difficult this must have been. Because when Jesus gathered his disciples, he did not gather his disciples based on shared interests. He did not gather his disciples based on same similar Enneagram profile. He didn't gather his disciples based on who they would politically vote for. He gathered disciples who were actually very different from one another and said, we're going to have to learn what it means to abide with each other. And there's two disciples in particular that when you see their names together, you go, how are these two in the same small group? this, This is really bad. There's a guy named Simon and a guy named Matthew. Look how different Simon and Matthew were. Simon is a tax collector or Matthew's a tax collector. Simon is a revolutionary. Matthew collected revenue, uh, Simon's attack, Matthew was a tax collector, Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans, Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy, Simon was a commoner. Matthew lived to make his money by overcharging people like Simon, and Simon lived to kill people like Matthew. You thought your small group was bad? This is a, this is a bad small group. <laughs> You're like, ooh, I thought mine, this is, this is a really bad small group. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's, he's helping us to reimagine what the gospel is. The gospel is not simply about forgiveness of sins, the beautiful message of forgiveness of sins, the glorious message of forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not simply about going to heaven when you die, some, some, some eschatological postmortem reality. It's beautiful. The gospel is not simply an atonement theory. Could I submit to you that the gospel is the good news, that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And the primary fruit of the gospel, you could argue throughout the scriptures, is a new family. The primary fruit is not simply forgiveness of sins. We praise God for that. We praise God for the hope that we have beyond the grave. But the primary fruit is that a new family in Christ Jesus is being established. And I think about how hard this is in our world. I think about how hard this is in my own context. In my own context, I'm made aware of how challenging this new family is every time the 4th of July comes around. Because when the 4th of July comes around, there are at least four profiles of people in our church that surface. Let me try to explain it this way here. 
There's the conservative in our church that has a hard time seeing anything wrong with this country. There's the progressive in our church who has a hard time seeing anything right with this country. There's the grateful immigrant in my context who might align socially and politically with a conservative, but from a a very different story. And then there's the guy who just wants to barbecue. Can I just barbecue? I I, I don't want to talk about politics. And can I just flip a burger? and, And can we just do that there? And every 4th of July, I see that emerge on social media. The people in my church that have something to say about all of this. And yet I'm reminded when Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, he was not just looking to rescue individuals. He was looking to form a people. From Genesis to Revelation, God is not after individuals. God is after a people, a new family, a new community, a new humanity. That's what God is after. And what Jesus is inviting us into is to learn what it means to be a calm presence to the world around us. And so again, uh, when I think about a calm presence, it's remaining close to God, remaining close to one another, and remaining close to ourselves in times of high anxiety. And yet what usually happens whenever anxiety emerges interpersonally is we tend to go into one or two extremes. We tend to either cut off or we tend to fuse into others. I think about this because I, 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 I notice these tendencies in my own self whenever anxiety surfaces. In 1997, I worked for Sony Theaters in Manhattan, 68th Street and Broadway. And uh, one of the things I loved about working in the movie theater was uh, I watched all the movies I wanted to, got all my friends in, everybody got free popcorn. I don't think I was supposed to do that, but everybody got free popcorn and... And every time I'm, you know, cleaning up the popcorn and all that, there's always music going around in the theater, especially in the lobby area. And so 1997, I could tell you almost every song, if a song comes out on the radio, if it came out in 1997, I'm going to let you know that song came out in 1997. (laughs) When I'm driving with my kids and my wife and the song comes on, it's just like, do you kids, do you know what year this song came out? (laughs) Tell us again, Dad. 1997. 1997. There's a song that came out in 1997 by Leanne Rimes. And, oh, I love me just some Leanne Rimes. And, and, and there's a song called How Do I Live Without You? A beautiful song. How do I live? Uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful. Now, on one level, this is the language of romance. It's the language of like, like you know, it, it's beautiful. And on another level, it's the language of fusion and enmeshment. <laughs> how do I live without you? I, I, how am I going to breathe? You're going to be okay, all right? How, how am I going to breathe? And yet, when I think about leadership, when I think about negotiating our differences, when I think about anxiety, this is our song. I can't, I, I can't really say something truthful because someone's going to leave. How do I live 
without your tithe? How do I live without you? I, I mean, we have all these stuff here now. Where now it's about enmeshment. And we are now, we fuse and disappear into someone else. And for some of us, whenever anxiety surfaces, we disappear. Our voice is no longer raised. We disappear into that one person, that one group of people. We are, we are placating, we are pacifying. We're on that end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is another song that came out about 20 years later by Selena Gomez, and it's called Cut You Off. (laughs) And the words to her song are, so I got to get you out of my head now, I just cut you off. You out of my head now, I just cut you off. When I'm without you, I don't overthink it, I just carry on. Get you out of my head now, I just cut you off. And some of us, when anxiety surfaces, that's where we go. What is anxiety? Let me just quickly define it. Anxiety is not about excessive worry or concern. Anxiety is an automatic response to a real or perceived threat, which emerges in us on a regular basis. And when it surfaces, the question is, where do you go? Do you cut off from people? It's my way or the highway. Or you disappear into people. And what differentiation, a good family systems theory terms, calm presence is about remaining close to God, remaining close to others, and remaining close to ourselves, especially in times of high anxiety. But this requires us to get in touch with ourselves. There are two equally damaging temptations we have as the people of God. The first is to use God to run from God. And the second is to use God to run from ourselves. To use God to run from God and to use God to run from ourselves. To, in the name of spirituality, in the name of leadership, in the name of of, of work, we can use God to run from ourselves. And unless we are getting in touch with what's happening within us, it's going to be, we're going to find it hard to actually now be present to others. When I think about this, I think about my own journey of marriage. My wife Rosie and I, we've been married for 17 years. And I never forgot when we were in our premarital phase, we took a course with a number of other couples and the couple up front who was leading that time said, all right, everyone, we just want to let you know from the, from the very start, it's going to take you at least 10 years to start learning how to be married. I was like, this is so depressing. It's going to take you at least 10 years to learn how to be married. And so I looked at Rosie in our mid-20s, and I said, babe, we'll do it in two. Come on now. And they give me a fist bump. <laughs> We've hit 17 years. We're babies. We just got started here. And it's taken us a long time to learn how to be married, especially whenever Rosie is experiencing difficult emotions. We don't call them negative emotions in our church. They're difficult emotions. And the difficult emotions of anger and sadness. Whenever Rosie is angry or sad, I go into four modes of being. My first mode is computer mode. Babe, you can do this, you can do this, 
You can do this. Here's the options. What do you, what you want to do? Come on, I'm, I'm here to help you. This doesn't work. <laughs> the second mode is superimposing mode. Well, if that was me, this is how I would think about it and feel about it. Um, you know, she's not even asking for this information, but I'll just, I'll just let it. If that was me, this, this doesn't work either. The third mode is minimizing mode. Babe, is, is it that bad, babe? Is it, is, is it that bad? Uh, I hear the groans. That, that, that doesn't work either. <laughs> The fourth mode is get out of their mode. All right, babe, I'll be back in two hours, right? And so you fix this stuff here, I'll be back, all right? And so I found myself, whenever Rosie was experiencing anger or grief, I did not know how to be with her. And so in that order, I go see a therapist. And I said, man, I need some help. And I go, I have seasons of therapy because I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better pastor, a better preacher, a better father. So I have seasons of therapy. And so I see the therapist and I says, hey man, every time my wife gets angry or sad, I go into four modes of being. I, and, he goes, and he's listening and he goes, Rich, I'm going to give you something very simple to do. The next time your wife is angry, the next time your wife is sad. I said, listen, I'm, I'm ready, doc. What, what you got? He said, the next time your wife is angry, I want you to be angry with her. I said, what else you got? That's not going to work. What, what, what else you got? He said, he said, just I want you to be angry with her. He said, this doesn't work if she's angry with you. I just want to let you know that there's nothing we could do at that point. <laughs> she's a consuming fire at that point. The next time she's angry, be angry with her. The next time she's sad, be sad with her. And he said, you're going to have to learn how to get in touch with your anger. And get in touch with your own grief to truly enter into that space. So a few weeks later, I'm doing my spiritual disciplines. I'm paying attention to my soul, my anger, my sadness. And then my moment came. A few weeks later, Rosie was angry. And praise the Lord, it it wasn't with me. And so I was very happy about that. She's angry and I'm thinking, this is my moment. My moment to shine, my moment to do what the doctor said. Now everything inside of me is saying, give options, option one, option two, option three, uh, superimpose, minimize, get out of there. No, the doctor said, be angry when she's angry. Now here's the thing. She was, it wasn't like a really, she was more perturbed. She was bothered about something, but she's an external processor. And so she's going on about it. And I'm thinking, this is my moment. So I kind of inch up closer and closer and closer and kind of mid-sentence, just totally interrupt her and join her in her anger. She said, what? You know, I, I just start going in. <laughs> How dare she talk to you like that? Who the hell is she think she... I'm, I'm, I'm going in. I'm going really in. She, she's like, calm down, babe. Calm down. I'm going, I don't want to calm down. <laughs> I'm like kicking stuff now. <laughs> and do you know what she felt at that moment? Loved, absolutely. Come on, sisters, testify here. I mean, just loved. Finally, this man is not trying to give me options and minimize or superimpose or abandon me. He's with me. And this is what the church needs. What does it mean to be with one another? There are people all over our nation. We've experienced racism. 
They don't want options. They don't want minimizing. They don't want superimposing. They want presence. Can you feel what I feel? Can you be with me? Can you be present to my reality? Presence. And this really requires us to be present with ourselves, which is the third movement here. Present with God. Presence with one another. Presence with ourselves. To talk about abiding is to talk about what it means to discern the work of the Holy Spirit within our own lives. Paying attention to the movements, the current of the Spirit, as the Spirit seeks to lead us in discerning God's will and paying attention to what's going on deep within our souls, remaining close to ourselves. When I think about this, and in the next session, I'm going to go into more detail about this. But I just want to tell a story and then give you an opportunity for a little bit of reflection before we have a little break. And when 2020 hit, I didn't feel lots of anxiety. I think I felt just kind of adrenaline. We had to adjust. We have to kind of adapt to this new reality. At least I didn't consciously feel the anxiety or consciously interpret anxiety as that was my reality. But I started feeling that after... January 6th, 2021. Happened on a Wednesday. Insurrection of the Capitol. And happened on a Wednesday. I was working on a sermon. And I see what's happening, trying to process it all. And then by Thursday, I realize, I think I need to change my sermon. Which is a prayer request I have for God. I say, God, can all the madness just happen on Monday from now on? Can I kind of, because... I mean, I can't be changing my sermon every Wednesday and Thursday here when I'm, can, can just the madness happen on Monday? And so I begin to adjust my sermon and serendipitously or providentially, that Sunday just happened to be in the church calendar, the day where the church was focusing on the baptism of Jesus. And so I thought, This would be a great message to preach in light of what's happening in our world. What does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have our allegiance to him? Our identity in him. And so I preached a message on baptism and belonging to Jesus Christ. And I mentioned the dangers to our baptism in our culture. I started naming things like conspiracy theories and cable news discipleship, and charismatic prophecies, corrosive racism, charismatic leadership that the church is enchanted by. And I started to lay it out in front of our church. We belong to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and the way of his kingdom. Well, not everyone was happy. A few weeks later, I started getting... A number of emails from people, not marginal people in our community, not fringe people in our community, like pillars of our church who are concerned about the message that I preached. Rich, can we get a Zoom meeting to talk? Can we process what you said? I have questions. I have concerns. 
And one after the other, I started having all these meetings. And there was one person in particular who was a significant part of our church history who wanted to meet. He said, Rich, can we meet for two hours on Zoom? I'm thinking, can anything good come out of a two-hour Zoom meeting? I said, two hours. I said, brother, can we make it 90 minutes, man? I don't know if I can handle two hours. Can we make it 90? He said, sure, we'll make, we'll make, it, we'll make it 90. And I began to prepare for that meeting, and I found myself not able to sleep at night. I found myself, you know, my body often knows before my mind can catch up what I'm feeling, which is why at our church we say uh, that our body is a major prophet, not a minor prophet. That our body speaks loudly. Our body's letting us know, pay attention before our souls and our minds can catch up. So I start paying attention. When, when, I, when I, I know I'm feeling anxiety, I can't catch a satisfying breath. I just can't get it when I need it. And I found my breathing constricted. I found myself sleepless at night. The day of the meeting, the two hour that turned into a 90 minute Zoom meeting, I found myself again very anxious and I realized, Lord, I, I, I need you to do something and I can't go into this meeting feeling like this because I'm going to be reactive. I'm not going to be present. And I don't want to deal with this. Lord, can you do something in me? And so I left my apartment. I walked down Queens Boulevard, found a bench in an area, and I just began to sit down and say, Lord, Holy Spirit, what's living inside of me right now? What are the messages? What are the scripts? What have I internalized that's keeping me from really being present to this person in a way that's marked by calm presence? Again, I'm not talking about emotional robots, but a way of life that's not marked by reactivity. What's happening inside of me? And I believe the Spirit of God began to identify messages that were living deep inside of me that he wanted to replace with new messages. And I want to share these messages with you because I believe to one degree or another, these messages or some messages like this live inside of us, live inside of you. And the degree to which we can begin to identify these messages and receive the good news of the gospel and the presence of Jesus in our lives to replace those messages, we're going to have a hard time being present to God and present to others and present to ourselves. There are seven messages that were living inside of me. I want to put them on the screen here for us. This is what I was carrying deep down in my soul. When people disagree with me, it means I'm a bad leader. If congregants and I are not on the same page, I'm doing something wrong as a leader. I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. Things will end in the worst way possible, and it will be my fault. I need you to like me for me to be okay. I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. And people who leave new life expose my deficiencies in leadership. And so I sat there for an hour and I said, Holy Spirit, what are the messages I need to live into? Can you help me name the lies? What's, what's the gospel scripts that need to come alive in me? And one by one, I began to journal and reflect and all that. And I want to tell you, my, my body didn't recover from the anxiety immediately. It took about another week for that to happen. But something shifted in my soul where I felt like I can now be present and curious and humble and ask good questions. And it, did, it, and it didn't mean that I had to disappear. And it didn't mean that I couldn't raise my voice. And it didn't mean that I couldn't articulate my deep values that I held. But I was going to do it from a different center. And so I sat on that Zoom call with him. We had a good 90-minute conversation. By the end of it, were all things resolved? Not at all. 
but something has shifted in my own life. And I began to think, Lord, what else am I carrying that's keeping me from being present to others? And here's a question I have for you. What are you carrying? What are the messages deep down in your own soul that the Holy Spirit is saying, it's time for a new set of scripts, a new set of messages, a new set of truths to center and ground you in a world that's marked by reactivity and anxiety and hostility. What does it mean to be a calm presence? Remain close to God. Remain close and curious to others. Remain close and curious to ourselves, especially in times of high anxiety. And what I love about our God is we have a God who longs to be present to us. A God who's with us. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the story about God's calm presence with us. God's unwavering presence with us. And what God invites us to is to behold the God who beholds us. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Amen. I want to invite you into a practice right now. I'm going to give you about five minutes, and then what i like us to do is to take maybe another three to four minutes to turn to a neighbor and just share an introduction here and then What's the Lord saying to you today? So here's a very simple question. Let's, let me give you two of them in wherever direction you want to go. First question is, where are you out of the three, remaining with God, remaining with others, remaining with ourselves? What is the particular invitation from the Lord today around one or maybe two of those areas? Is there a name that comes to mind? Oh, I need to learn how to abide with this person. Or I have to really learn to abide with myself. That's number one. The second way you can go, and I'm going to give you five minutes, is to maybe identify what are the messages that live inside of you. Whenever anxiety surfaces, whenever conflict emerges, what are the one or two messages that you know are living inside of you? And what might the Spirit of God be trying to replace that with? And so we'll do that for five, I'll be the timekeeper, we'll do that for five minutes. And then after that, we'll just turn to a neighbor and we'll just share for another few minutes and then we'll take our break, amen? Let me pray for us, let's invite the Spirit of God just to lead us as we engage in this bit of interior examination. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for abiding with us and for the invitation to abide with you. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to part one of Calming Leadership, how we as leaders can be a steady presence in a world fractured by anxiety with Rich Velotis. Part two is available now on the Together PDX podcast.